the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday. I had somebody ask me, why do you say it's like Tuesday or whatever it is? And, 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 you know, you think everybody knows what day it is, but I do that to remind me. So this is the Tuesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life or in the world. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. That is our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always if you are driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer Uh, let's get right to questions our first one is from Jonathan from our email inbox Pastor Ron, can you share some light on what a Dalai Lama is or does? Uh, he's under fire for kissing a boy on the mouth and saying, uh, asking him to suck his tongue. Reports say that the 87-year-old has since apologized for his actions and that His Holiness wishes to apologize to the boy and his family as well as his many friends across the world for his words hurt and may have caused. Uh, also noted that the Nobel Peace Prize winner could have been joking with the boy and that His Holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way. The statement continued, even in public and before cameras, he regrets the incident. Is this something like the Pope and the Catholic religion? Are we supposed to revere these men as holy and noble? Where do they get their beliefs and values from? Any help is greatly appreciated. Jonathan, um uh, obviously, this has been in the news, so I think probably everybody has heard about it now. Um, you know, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. If he's got a good track record and his character has been established, and, and even if they suggest or hint that he was kidding, I think it was done in exceptionally poor taste. And his apology wasn't really an apology. Um, this is something for Christians now, Jonathan. When we apologize for something, we can't qualify the apology. We can't say, well, I'm sorry I did this, but, or I'm sorry if I may have offended you or if I may have hurt you. Obviously, if people are hurting, it's not a matter of did you hurt them or did you offend them? It happened. And then you can apologize for that. But an apology uh, has no qualifications. I said it or I did it. I blew it. It was wrong. I wish I could do it over, but I can't. Please forgive me. That's what an apology is. So his apology wasn't really an apology. 
of all. Now, what I want to do is focus on the last part of your question. Is this something like the Pope and the Catholic religion? The Dalai Lama is sort of the equivalent of the Pope for the Buddhist religion. Um, the Pope is the, the Catholics say he is the vicar of Christ on earth. Um, and and Buddhists would say that the Dalai Lama uh, occupies sort of the same position. Uh, but no, Jonathan, we're not supposed to revere these men as holy and religious or holy and noble, your, your words. They're not. Uh, they're, they're people who are going to go to hell. They need to be born again. And our responsibility is to pray for them, and we should. But our responsibility is to um, tell the truth and tell the truth in love. The Dalai Lama is going to spend forever separated from God in eternal torment. Um, likewise, the Pope. Uh, if the Pope is is not born again, and, and it, it would seem clear, I think, to anyone uh, listening to the Pope and looking at his actions, that he's not a born-again believer. Now, there are born-again Catholics. I, I want to say that because I get hammered for, for saying these things all the time. People want to misunderstand. And, um, you know, Jesus said only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven, period. He said that to Nicodemus, a very religious man. And the Pope is, a, a as an unbeliever, uh, he knows obviously about Christ. He knows the Catholic tradition. But... Uh, the same thing is true with the Dalai Lama, who denies Christ by his professions of faith in Buddhism. So, no, we're not to revere these men. They are not holy. They are not noble. They are sinners, just like the rest of us who need Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So, no, uh, we don't revere them. We don't honor them. We simply, if we had the opportunity, and we will never get that opportunity face to face, but if we had the opportunity, we would share the gospel of grace with them. So, um, their beliefs and values come from all of the places unbelievers' beliefs and values come from, and that is from the enemy of our souls. So, Jonathan, I hope that answers your question. Um, thank you very, very much. Speaking of people trying to catch me, here's a, a question from our email inbox. This one from Juan. Now, Juan has, has written this exact same question. He's changed the numbers a little bit, and and he's used a different name, but um, this is one. He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Yesterday I heard you say that nearly 60% of the people in the church are not saved. Can you provide a reference on that number? On Sunday you gave an altar call, and you said most of you are born-again Christians. That seems contradictory to yesterday's comments. I think it was the third service, but only one person came up. One out of 300 is not 60%. Please forgive me if I missed your comments. Thank you. One, I don't know what point you're trying to make. You're trying to catch me in an error, or you're just picking at straws. I, I don't understand why you would ask this question twice. And in this particular case, I've never said 60%. I said that that I fully believe, and I'm going to just say this again, I fully believe that half of the people sitting in churches, not at Calvary Chapel San Antonio, but in churches generally on any given Sunday are not born-again Christians. And that's not a number that I made up. That's not a number that that um, only I use. Uh, I've heard pastors all over the world use that number. Uh, the, the reality, one, is that people come to church. They know about Jesus Christ, but they don't know him. They're not born again. Jesus said on the day, the day of judgment, when we stand before the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you doer of iniquity, or you uh, um, uh, sinner is basically what Jesus is saying. So um, let me, I'm, I'm going to be as specific as I can. I think in the church, generally, there are um, half of the people that come to church. They go through the religious motions. They've never really trusted Jesus Christ. They've never surrendered their heart to him, nor have they been born again. And that's the reason so many people's lives don't change. Remember, it's not the profession of faith that saves. It's the reality of faith in Jesus Christ that saved. And one, uh, or whatever your name is, um, when uh, people say they're born again and live like they're not, that's what I'm talking about. And I do think that describes half of the people that come to church in every churches, in all churches, 
um, for for no matter where you go. So that's the number, and and um, um, I, I feel very confident in that number. Now at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, I know most of the people, and uh, I'm like. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Church of the Hebrews, he's saying, after saying, you know, if you, if you, uh, having believed and you depart, uh, you know, you're toast. You, 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 there's no place else to go. But then he says, then, but I have for you in mind better things, things that accompany salvation, and that's what the pastor of a church wants to do. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm giving the invitations. Uh, you're right. In third service on Sunday, one person. Uh, came up, and um, um, I know the, the Lord was speaking to many, many more, but they're the ones that have to make the choice. Uh, I can't force them to. I, every invitation, I, I end by saying, um, the choice is yours. And there are people that choose to remain in the condition that they arrived in, sometimes people choose to get saved. I wish they all would get saved. It's an interesting dynamic. When I'm giving an invitation, the Holy Spirit is speaking to my heart. I'm listening for words of knowledge or words of wisdom. I'm I'm listening if the Lord wants me to exhort. We don't draw the, the invitations out here, and we don't try to appeal to their emotions. We don't try to scare them into heaven. But there are times when the Lord will say something to my heart and I'll, I'll, I'll give the word and then some more people will come forward. That's just God reaching out because he wants them to come forward. Um, but, um, you know, this weekend, Easter weekend, we, we didn't have a whole bunch of people respond. Uh, sometimes we do, other times we don't. This Easter, uh, we had people respond in every service. Uh, God and the angels in heaven rejoice over a single sinner that comes, so they were happy in heaven. But remember, they have to make the choice, and a lot of times, most times, one, people choose to remain in the condition that they arrived in. They don't have to, but that's the choice that they made. So, no contradiction. Uh, I want to believe the best about the people here at Calvary Chapel. Again, I know the people here at the church. Uh, we got new people coming in. Obviously, I don't know them well. But by and large, I think one of the great dynamics of our church is we've got people that have been here for 25 years, a bunch of them. And uh, we got people that uh, came up to me or to Paula on Sunday and said, hey, this is my first time. We had a uh, a, a beautiful lady who who came up uh, in uh, third service on or before third service on Sunday, and um, she said, "This is my anniversary." And and I, I I took that to mean we didn't have a lot of time to talk, but I took that to mean that she is starting now to come call Calvary Chapel of San Antonio her home church, uh, and see that's great. That's just we love the the way the Lord. Uh, allows us the opportunity to have people that are brand new and people that have been here for 25 years or, or more. And um, we've gotten to watch their kids grow. We've seen them grow. So, you know, I'm talking generally to people. So uh, you're not catching me in uh, any kind of a um, contradiction. Um, all we're trying to do uh, is... Give people the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I love the fact that the people that come here and call this their church home, they know I'm going to give an invitation, and that encourages them to um, invite people to church all the time. So, hope that makes sense. This one is from Monty. Monty says, what did Jesus mean by faith that can move mountains? Uh, From Zechariah, Monty, and I, I tell people all the time, that Jesus' ministry was Jewish, 100% Jewish. Uh, His ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so we have to understand the Jewish context of the statement. Jesus is not concerned about moving mountains into oceans. Uh, From Zechariah, a mountain is an immovable object or or, or an obstacle that seems to be impossible. Um, uh, Zechariah and, and, and Nehemiah and Ezra, 
Um, you know, uh, when, when Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, it looked like an impossible job. Uh, when um, uh, they were rebuilding um, the Temple Mount uh, in, after the Babylon captivity, um, it just seemed like the work was impossible. They couldn't possibly get it done. And Jesus basically is saying, um, if you have faith the size of a, a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, again, that impossible object or obstacle, uh, be thou removed and cast into the sea. Again, Jesus doesn't uh, care about mountains being removed and cast into oceans, but he's talking to his people about those immovable obstructions. Now, Monty, the reason that's important for us is because when we run into difficulties, when we have trials, uh, things that happen in our lives that seem soul-crushing at times, Uh, We need to remember that the littlest, tiniest bit of faith in Jesus Christ, uh, he can move those mountains. On Sunday, uh, I spoke only briefly about this this year. Sometimes I I, I say a lot more about it. But, uh, you know, when uh, Mary Magdalene and the other women got up very early in the morning on that Sabbath to go back to the tomb, uh, they were worried about who was going to roll the stone away. They were just women, and that stone would weigh uh, a ton, and they wouldn't, be, you know, they couldn't move it on there. And so they worried about who was going to move it. And um, by the time they got there, of course, we know the stone was already moved. They worried about something that they didn't need to worry about, and that's what Jesus is really meaning. The things that seem impossible for us, Jesus is saying, "Hey." Trust me, I got this, and that's exactly what they're doing. So, thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Vince. Uh, Is it okay to ask God to send a dream or a sign to confirm an important decision that has to be made? You know, Vince, these things are okay. Um, but, But I think sometimes asking God to send a dream or a sign is sort of a, 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 a byproduct of weak faith. Um, you know, one of the things that we want to know... Now, Vince, I'm right there with you because uh, I want to know that I'm right. You know, there's a lot of people that that are affected by the decisions that I make. Uh, when we take steps of faith, it's scary. And I I often ask God to speak to my heart at night. Uh, get, I, I'll go one step further. Vince, I've asked God to take me to heaven during the nights the way he took the Apostle Paul to heaven uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Um, and, and the reason that I've asked him is because it just didn't seem like... Excuse me, that was a sneeze break. It just didn't seem like, um, um, you know, things were the way I thought they would go. And I just thought, oh, Lord, I hope I'm right. I don't want to mess anybody up. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's okay to ask, but the reality, Vince, is that God wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to know that if our, and this is so important for us to understand, if our heart is right with God, the decision or choice that we make doesn't have to be right. God will direct our steps. God will protect us. All we have to do is trust him to do it. So, yeah, it's okay. I don't know how long you've been saved. I don't know where you are in your walk. Uh, I don't know what kind of faith you have, Vince. But here's what I can tell you is that Jesus will be with you. Just bear your heart before him and say, be able to pray for whatever it is and say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. And if you mean it, Jesus will direct your steps. Thank you, Vince. Appreciate it. Let's go to Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. It's good to call today. Thank you. I have two things, and one is in Matthew 27, 4. At the end of the uh, Last Supper, they sang a hymn, it says, and I was curious if if we have any idea of what hymn, if it was one of the psalms, you know, that they might have sung. That's my first question. Mm-hmm. And my second one is in Proverbs 9.4. It's talking about wisdom, and it says, um, it was here a minute ago. 
Okay. Well, well, nine four. Here it is. I got my numbers mixed up. It says that all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment. Now, the word simple. I'm curious what the word simple back then translated into because nowadays if you're a simple person and you're living a simple lifestyle it's kind of like you don't have all the fancy doodahs you know that we have now and you know all the stuff but we just have a simple life so i'm just curious about what the difference between simple now translates to what the simple back then translated to because there's several places in proverbs that it's calling simple the simple people you know mm-hmm. to come to wisdom so, anyways, I'm going to get off the phone and listen to your answer. Bye. Thank, thank you for calling, Cindy. Um, let me deal with the Proverbs question first. Um, um, the, the word is 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 really sort of naive, is what it means. Um, it, it, can, it, it can mean, and is used other places to mean foolish, but it's also used in other places to mean open-minded. So what you've got to do is rely on the context to know what it is. Um, sometimes it's a pejorative, meaning something not uh, flattering. Other times it is um, um, just somebody who's just naive, and, and we all know people like that. So when he says that all who are simple come in here, what he's saying uh, in this context is to those who lack judgment. So she's really talking, or he's really talking about those who are foolish or um, um, simple-minded kind of thing. And again, it's not meant as an insult. And of course, coming in here is coming in to the presence of wisdom. I think we got to remember always, especially in the poetic books, that this is figurative language. So, um, you know, wisdom, we would say, is in the presence of the Lord. Wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, but in this particular case, um, what uh, Solomon is saying is, uh, if you are simple-minded, uh, if you're foolish, uh, wisdom is available. If you lack judgment, wisdom is available. It's almost like James saying that if any of us lacks wisdom, ask the Lord, and he gives generously. So that's the idea here. Um, regarding the other question, Matthew chapter 27, um, when they sang a hymn, it would certainly have been one of the Psalms. Uh, we don't know which psalm, uh, but but it would have been one of the psalms for sure. And when we um, think about that, wouldn't you have loved to have been there uh, just one time, just one time to um, listen to what it would have sounded like as they would have sang a song or just uh, spoke the psalm, whatever it was. But uh, that's that's exactly what they're talking about. So it would have been one of the Psalms. I'm looking at my notes here because I wanted to see if uh, at the end there, uh, there was a, um, a reference uh, that I looked up before. Yeah, uh, there, there are many who think it's Psalm 118, um, but uh, we, we don't know for sure. But that's uh, what... The prevailing thought is, and it would have been very common. It would have been uh, something that happened in those evenings. So they sang a psalm. Thank you very, very much, Cindy, for the question. You know, I am uh, my my morning reading just by myself is is now in the Psalms, and I, I'm not a Psalm guy. Um, I know people read Psalms all the time, and uh, I'm not a Psalm guy. But uh, I'm reading through the Psalms now, and I got up this morning. And I was looking, uh, I I think it was through Psalms 26 through 30. And when I got to Psalm 30, uh, I went out and told Paul, I said, Boy, Lord, really um, encourage me to remember all of the good things that he's done in Psalm 30. So let me sort of pass on that recommendation uh, to all of you. I think sometimes, especially when we're going through something that's a little bit difficult, I think we've got to be able to to, uh, remember uh, the things that God has done, remember his faithfulness. I think sometimes we Christians forget that it doesn't depend on us, but it depends on God. And if we come to him on his terms, he'll always be there. And that Psalm uh, today, Psalm 30, 
um, just sort of forced me to remember how good God has been to us, to me, how faithful he's been. Um, his track record in my life has been perfect. Uh, and remembering those things from time to time is really a good thing. Here's our last question for the first half of the program. This one is from Denise. Um, she says, I know perfect love casts out fear. Does that mean my love is less than perfect because I still experience fear? Denise, we have to remember the context. The, the perfect love casts out fear. And then the writer says, because fear has to do with judgment. And you and I don't have any fear of judgment if we're a born-again Christian because all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. This does not say that if your love is perfect, that you won't be afraid anymore. Fear, Being fearful is part of the human condition. And uh, how we respond to fear is what we're being tested on when we have those times of fear. Jesus said, do not be afraid. But the reality is the people then and people now are still afraid. It's how we respond to that fear that talks about our faith. So um, it's not about your love. It's in this context. Fear has to do with judgment. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday program. We love your calls and questions. 340-9585. That's area code 210. Cindy, I hope you're still listening um, I couldn't find uh, the, the reference in my notes because you said Matthew 27. It's actually Matthew 26, uh, verse 30. Uh, and um, these would be the Hallel Psalms. Um, so anywhere, any of the Psalms from 113 to 118 would have been uh, the Psalms that, that, that Jews would have sung at an occasion like that. Now, the the staggering thought to me is this. Jesus worshipped on the way to the cross. Let that sink in for a moment. I don't know if your heart has ever been so troubled. We know Jesus' heart was troubled what happened to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Judas, the overwhelming implications of all that he was about to endure. And he chose at that moment to worship his Father. He chose to worship his father instead of being consumed with thoughts about what was going to happen to him. He chose to worship. I think that's a wonderful example that we should follow. The other thing that I always think about with that is Paul and Silas, you know, when they're in a Philippian jail, a prison cell. And, and you know, from their perspective, it would have looked like they were going to be executed um, at first light. Uh, they were in the stocks. They had been beaten. Uh, their backs would have been torn open. Uh, rats gnawing at their open wounds. And um, I think Paul looked at Silas, and Silas looked at Paul, and they said, well, doesn't look good. Looks like the only thing left to do is to worship God. They began to sing a hymn. And um, it is very likely that Paul would have sung one of those very same hymns. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the question, Cindy. And uh, sorry it took me so long to get there. Just I, I wasn't in Matthew 27. Here's a question from Amy. Are there some books in the Bible we should read more often than others? Yeah, Amy, I think so. Uh, our church here at Calvary Chapel is used to me saying this. I, I tell them they ought to read... Um, the book of Acts and the book of Revelation at least twice every year. Um, just so important to practice, so important to day-to-day life. 
important to look to the future, knowing that Jesus is coming soon. So, yeah, I think there are books in the Bible that that we should read more often than others. Uh, While I emphasize Acts and Revelation, um, I think for for, for a normal Christian, and by that I mean just somebody who loves the Lord and wants to grow closer to him and learn more about him, I think reading the Gospels uh, continually has great, great value. But what I don't want to do is leave the impression that we ought to exclude other books. I think we need to get an overview of all of the books of the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And just the majesty of of um, the, the the continuity of the books of our Bible, the the miraculous way that the Bible was was put together and preserved. Um, I think you get the real beauty uh, as you as you get the overview. But but clearly there are some books in the Bible we should read more often than others. I think Ephesians, for me personally, is one of those books. Uh, Genesis is a book that we ought to read often. The character studies are marvelous. Um, but we need to be familiar with the story of creation. We need to be convinced that this is exactly how things went. And this one I'm going to suggest, Amy, um, is may, may surprise a lot of people. Uh, but I think, I think in the Old Testament we ought to read Judges. Judges has the best character studies, in my opinion, the best character studies uh, in the Bible. I love Judges. It is a super fun book to teach. And I love teaching it because the people are just like you and just like me. They have weak faith. Um, they, they, they they do what seems right to them and things get messy and then God is always there to bail them out. So uh, I think uh, those are the books. But, but the anchor books, I think we ought to read more often than others. The anchors, the Gospels, um, and um, regardless of the uh, other books, um, the Gospels, uh, Ephesians, Acts, Revelation, for sure. Thanks very, very much, Amy. Here's a question from Vanessa. Vanessa says, um, my husband has insisted I stop going to church so I can spend time with him. What should I do? Vanessa, the Bible says to love your husband the way Christ loved the church. Would Jesus ever ask you to stop going to church when he's told you in the Bible, do not forsake the assembling together of the saints? So here's what I would ask, I would suggest that you do. Tell your husband you love him with all your heart, but you love Jesus more. And um, Jesus tells me that fellowship is really, really important to my spiritual health. And since you don't want to go with me, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to serve in church. And then you got me for the rest of the week. And that's what I would tell him. So that's what you should do. Do what the Lord tells you to do. You know, um, um, I've actually had pastors ask this question of me. And I would say, well, what do you think? Why would you even ask the question? Well, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. But they we have a tendency to forget those words, as to the Lord. That means your husband can't ask you to do anything that contradicts the Bible. Your husband can't ask you to do anything that is sinful. Uh, doesn't make him the boss. It means that you serve Jesus Christ first. And that's when husbands are affected. And I'm going to tell you this, Vanessa, because I know it personally. Um... An obedient Christian wife is God's greatest weapon in the home of an unbelieving husband. Be faithful. Do what God tells you to do. Rightly represent him in heart and in attitude. Don't get angry and don't let his flesh provoke your flesh. But he needs to know. He really needs to know that Jesus comes first. You know, Vanessa, in part, I got saved because I knew that Paula loved Jesus more than she loved me. 
And it made me so angry. She prayed for me for 13 years. It made me so angry. And yet I knew that her Jesus was real. When nothing else in my life was, I knew that her Jesus was real and that he was stronger than I was. And that's why when I got saved 32 years ago, I called out for Paul as Jesus. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't know anything about him except that he was there for her. I couldn't steal her joy, and believe me, I tried. I couldn't control her. I tried that as well. Um, and her witness is eventually what convinced me more than anything else that her Jesus was real. And um, I'm glad she did. So, no, you can't stop going to church, period. And, Vanessa, if you've got kids, you need to work something out uh, with your husband where uh, you're going to take them with you as well. It's, they're your kids as well. And um, it's your responsibility as a believer in the house to get them to church. Here is Randy, a question. He says, I feel called to preach, but also have a family to support. Should I wait until I make more money and save? Now, I don't know if my Randy is listening to this, but you sent me an email that was kind of similar to this. This is not from you. This is a question I've had for several days. So um, I'm not betraying any confidence here. Um, Randy, your job as the father and husband in a home is to be obedient to the Lord. You know, we provide for our families and people get focused on the money, but there's nothing more important than you can provide your family than to show them a husband and a father who loves and serves Jesus Christ with an obedient heart. Let God take care of the finances. So let God support your family. Jesus said, why do we worry about these things? The Lord provides all these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And of course, the other things uh, are the things that you're kind of talking about. You know, we have to put food on the table. We got to pay our rent. We got to do those things. But when God is calling you, you've got to trust him. You've got to trust him to provide for your family. And you can't trust God to provide for your family if you're not doing what he wants you to do. So, again, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about your calling to preach or to, to be a pastor. Um, but here's what you got to do. You've got to put all of your eggs in the Jesus basket. And the only way you can do that, the only way you can do that is to say, Lord, I surrender everything to you. That's what Romans 12.1 says. Brethren, in view of God's mercy, considering everything that he's done, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, Randy, you need your family support. So what you do is you bring them into the decision-making process. And when I say decision-making, you're praying about this calling. You want the Lord to make it clear to your wife. Um, but believe me, if you're waiting until you make more money or until you've saved more money, it will never happen. I can promise you that. Today is the day to be obedient to the Lord and to answer the call. Let me tell you how I know this. And this is just not what the Bible teaches, but my practical experience uh, bears witness as well. Randy, uh, when I got saved, I knew that I would never work for anybody but the Lord again. Now, I got weakened faith a couple of times and went out and took jobs. For me, making money was a gift that God has always given me, so it was easy for me. Um, and, and, and when we got in really tight spots a, a few times, uh, I got a job. And, and I knew I was being disobedient, and certainly that disobedience could never be blessed. But one of the things I had to do when I, I had to sit down with Paula and, and remember, I'd made a big mess financially. Uh, my sin was, was horrible. And yet, um, talking to Paula, I had to tell her that the Lord has spoken to my heart and told me I'm never to work for anybody else but him again. And I asked her, I said, I need you to support that call 
So I need you to really pray. And God spoke clearly to her heart as well. Now, there were times I'm sure she was irritated. She was still working. For instance, when we first got here to San Antonio, um, I knew, she knew I was not to get a job. I was to trust the Lord. He was preparing us for a very unique ministry, and this is a very unique circumstance. Um, But she took some jobs. She was doing cleaning in the apartment complex that we lived in and and, and helping out that way. But uh, if we weren't in agreement, you can imagine how the enemy would have used that. So this is something that you need to bring your wife into the process of. And trust that the Lord will move on her heart. She may not agree at first. She may be scared. But when you let her know that all you want to do is answer the call of God, then what you need to do is give the Lord some time to work on her heart. And then you can walk together, committed to that course that God has given you. So, Randy, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Trip. if I'm reading it right. He says, 1 Corinthians 12.31 says that we are to desire the best gifts. What are the best gifts? Trip, one of the things we have to remember is there are no chapter and verse divisions in the, the original autographs. So um, chapter 12 doesn't end, and then we go to chapter 30. It's just a continuation of thought. And clearly, the, the, the best gift is love. Faith, hope, and love. Of those, love is the greatest gift. So those are the gifts that we are to desire. And if you look at the way chapters 12, 13, and 14 are put together, it's sort of like chapter 13, the love chapter, glues them all together. God gives gifts of the Spirit. Here's how you use the gifts of the Spirit. But using those gifts must be motivated by love. So how do we do that? Well, God has poured out His Holy Spirit into our hearts. His love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So all we have to do, Trip, is to have enough faith to believe that he's given us. But the best gifts in context here is the gift of faith, hope, and love. Love, of course, being the greatest of them all. Terry says, since we all came from Adam, then it appears that God blessed incest. Terry, that's a silly question, silly response. You know better than that. There was no incest. Um, Humans were perfect until Adam and Eve fell. And after that, you know, people lived a very, very long time. And it took a long time for the effects of the fall to, to, uh, to come into play. So yes, brothers and sisters slept together and had children. How else would the world be fruitful and multiply? So uh, it wasn't that he blessed incest. We know now that incest is wrong, but there were no other alternatives, and that's exactly the way it started. Now, if your statement here is one of your aha moments about, well, well, uh, if if God wants, if God said we could do this, then we can do it now. Or, or if God said to do this, then God can't be good, or God can't be holy, or just. Um, Terry, just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. God, uh, we know incest is a sin that's dealt with very specifically in the Scripture. But a pre-fallen world was much different from the world that we live in. And that's all the time I'm going to give to that question, Terry. Wayne says, uh, <laughs> I like this way. I like the way you think, Wayne. Why does Satan even bother to mess with Christians? What's in it for him? Um, you know, he's lost our soul. He knows it. So you might think, well, that's a silly fight for him. Or he's going to lose. Let me say two things, Wayne. First, sin is insane. Sin doesn't make sense. There's no logical way to think about sin. That's the way it is, but I can tell you the, the most important thing in it for Satan to mess with Christians is to uh, ruin our witness. He wants us to compromise. He wants the whole world to point at us and say, you know, uh, I'd go to church, but there's nothing but hypocrites in there. And it looks like Satan's done a pretty good job because that's what a lot of people say. Oh, church is full of hypocrites. We should tell people, you know, and then you'll feel right at home. Come on in. But um, it's Satan's job to, to, to 
help us or to cause us to compromise our witness. That's what's in it for him. He doesn't want us to produce any fruit. He doesn't want us using the gifts that God has given him because he knows he's no match for a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian. Uh, he doesn't want us to live uh, with, a, with a, a loving heart toward difficult people. Ananias um, and Sapphira uh, was the first time Satan really tried to infiltrate the church with hypocrites. And, uh, and God gave us his once and for all statement about what he thinks about hypocrisy inside the church. Um, he, he killed them both. Um, again, I think I think they're going to be in heaven. I, I think they were believers, um, but you know, God's saying, "I will not have my pure church." And the church was pure up to that point. I won't have my pure church infiltrated without responding directly and uh, instantly. And that's what he did. But but Satan's job, Wayne, is to make sure that we don't influence anybody else ever with regard to coming to heaven. And um, that's why there's so much spiritual warfare um, when it comes to uh, to Christians. Bill says, Pastor Ron, are the rapture and the second coming two separate events? Um, yeah, they, they are two separate events. I think it, it should be really clear, Bill. Uh, the rapture is going to happen uh, after the last Christian gets saved. Um the second coming is going to happen seven years after the rapture, uh, after the great tribulation is over, when Jesus is um, coming back. Uh, you and I will be with him. Excuse me, another sneeze break. You and I will be coming back with him, uh, and that's when he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. But yes, the rapture is not Jesus coming to earth for his people. I've had people say, well, you believe in three comings. No, uh, he came once. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem. The next time we who are believers see him, it's going to be uh, at the rapture of the church. He's not coming here for us. We're coming there. We're going to meet him in the air. Um, and that will kick off, of course, the great tribulation on earth and the wedding supper of the Lamb uh, in in heaven. So, yes, but they are two completely distinct and separate events. Um, we're looking for the rapture at any moment Jesus could come. Um, as earth tells time from that point forward, it will be seven-ish years um, and I'm going to say seven-ish. It's about seven. We know that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel. Um, and, and from the, the issuing of the, that covenant, there will be exactly seven years left. At the middle point of that seven years, three and a half years, Satan is going to be demanded to be worshipped as God. He's going to desecrate the temple. as was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. Uh, and that's when uh, we enter into the last half of the Great Tribulation. So um, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. Here is a question from Adam. Um, he says, how is it possible to believe in original sin and believe that babies who die go to heaven? Is that a contradiction? No, um, Jesus made it very clear. We're born condemned in his in his conversation with Nicodemus. We're born steeped in sin. Surely, David says, I was sinful in my mother's womb, sinful from birth. We know that. Now, babies are cute and babies are delicious and we love them. But everybody who's had a baby knows that they are sinners. They are demanding. They are slave masters. They want what they want when they want it. And, and they, they give us very little choice. Um, but they're not guilty of any sin that they're accountable for because they don't have the capacity, Adam, to uh, distinguish between right and wrong at that point. So they go to heaven um, because God is just and God is love and God is kind and God is good and God is gracious and all of those other um, descriptions of, of who God is. So... Um, you can believe in original sin. It is a true biblical doctrine. But you can also believe that babies who die go to heaven when David's son with Bathsheba died. 
David made the statement, um, I cannot come to him, or I mean, he cannot come to me. He'd been praying for a healing. Uh, he cannot come to uh, to me, but I will go to him. So we will see those babies in heaven. Last question. Mike says, Mikey, I'm sorry, Mikey. I feel like the teaching at my church is pretty watered down. Is it okay to give money to online ministries that I use a lot instead of giving to my church? Um, a couple of things. First, your money is yours. You can do with it what you want. Um, but, but as a believer, you ought to be praying, God, what do you want me to do? And I think the Lord would speak to your heart, Mikey, if you're church is watering down their teachings, then you probably ought not to be going to that church. If you're not getting fed, if you don't have a place you can use the gifts God has given you to serve, uh, then you probably ought not to go to that church. And then you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not you give to the church. Now, relative to giving money to online ministries, just be discerning, but remember that your money belongs to the Lord. So here's what you do. You ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with your stuff? It's your money. It's not my money. So what do you want me to do? And there are online ministries. There are uh, good ones. There are bad ones. You've got to be discerning. But let the Lord direct. One of the frustrations I have as a pastor is that people try to make decisions about giving without praying. Now, obviously, we know we ought to give to our local churches. That's where the, the, the bulk of our giving ought to be. But, you know, maybe there's a single mom in your church who needs to be helping. God would say sometimes, uh, how about you help them out? He wants to love on them, wants to bless them, and you get to be a vessel that he uses in that case. But pray. Let God direct your giving that's giving by faith and that's giving God can bless. So Mikey, thank you for that. Hey, thanks for tuning in and thank you for putting up with my sneeze breaks. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.